can't see them. But I know they're there. But you know, God's in charge, right? He can handle anything that the enemy wants to throw at us. I hope that all of you this morning are doing well, as well as those who are online watching this morning. Um, we consider it a blessing when we can come to God's house. No greater joy to have all of his children together that we can come and support and greet and pray and be there and hug. And I know that uh, we are here today to give God the glory and the praise for who he is. Uh, you have your bulletins. I pray that you look at all the information that's on the white sheet of paper in the middle. Kind of gives you the idea as far as the activities throughout the week and the themes that are yet to come. Um, one item I want to make to your attention is that as you leave today, you're going to see some baskets out there. And this is kind of starting a campaign that we have been doing for quite a few years with Jason Lee from across the street. They're allowing us to be of help to assist their children in dire needs of shoes, socks, and underwear. Let's see, I got mine, I got mine. Yep, I got them all. And so therefore, it's crucial that we all have these things, right? And so these little guys, they need our help to get them as well. So they're going to have it go through the through uh, September, but please, I know that they really benefit that we can come and bring items that we can put into their closet to help these kids who are deprived and don't have the means or the way to have, be the, furnish those needs that they have. So before we start, let's take about 30 seconds, greet those around you, welcome them to God's church this morning, and uh, it's just a joy to be here. Okay, family, it's time to find your seat. Today we are going to be blessed with Pastor Larissa and her message. And I love it when she preaches to us. But you know, God wants to hear from us, his church. God wants to hear from us, his children. And this morning I'm going to ask Andy to come up as we, he leads us out in corporate prayer. And he's going to take us to the throne room of God this morning. Please bow your heads with me and get into a posture of prayer. Dear Jesus, here I am. All my intentions, all my obsessions, I lay them all down. Lord, you know who I am. You know who we all are. And somehow you want us. The King of Heaven wants each and every one of us. You take care of us. You provide for us. You've carried us through these past several years, and you've given us hope for what's to come. 
Now we want to lift up people who need some extra care and hope. We lift up Dr. Smith, who is struggling in his battle with cancer. We lift up Mr. Stout and his family, who are going through their own journey with cancer. We lift up Grandma Kay, who has come down with COVID. And we lift up Pastor Larissa, as she is about to preach your word. Give her peace and clarity so she can tell us what you want us to hear. And of course, Lord, we are all going through something, be it depression, anxiety, relationship struggles, or financial hardship. We can all use some extra help. So I ask you to draw close to each and every one of us in a special way. Remind us that you made each and every one of us special, and you love us very, very much. In your precious name, amen. Now, if you all would like to join us as we praise God in music, if you'd all please stand. I search the world, but it couldn't fill me. Man's empty praise, treasures that fade are never enough. And you came along and put me back together.
having children's church today so all the kids if you will now get up and follow Keeney out to the children's church
that heart and shows
Good morning. Happy Sabbath. It's good to see you guys here. To those of you that are joining us online, welcome too as well. We're glad that you are here joining us. Today we are going to be spending a little bit of time in the Old Testament. The Old Testament happens to be my favorite testament out of the two. Now, I love Jesus, don't get me wrong, but the Old Testament is so fascinating to me. It's so interesting. It has so many different peculiar stories, to be honest with you. And today we're going to be looking at one of those peculiar stories. We're going to spend our time this morning in 2 Kings chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles with you and would like to look it up, you can, 2 Kings chapter 7. Otherwise, it will be on the screen. Uh, let's go ahead and take a moment and let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to say thank you for your Sabbath. Thank you for um, all the ways in which you have blessed us, Lord. And we also ask that you would please be with our church family that is not here today. Um, that you would be with them and keep them safe. Please be with me as I speak your words. I pray this in your holy name. Amen. Tilly and her family were vacationing in Thailand. They had, it was spring break, or around, it was a break, I should say. And they were in Thailand enjoying all the beautiful and wonderful things that a vacation holds. It was 2004, and Tilly was 10 years old. And Tilly remembers sitting on the beach with her family. And as she sat on the beach with her family, she noticed something really interesting. She noticed that the water started frothing. It started bubbling and looking kind of a little bit like soda with bubbles coming up. She also noticed that the tide had started going out. Remembering a few weeks before when she had been in school, Tilly remembered that these were the first initial signs of a tsunami. And so she told her mom and dad and her sister that a tsunami was coming based on these signs and that they needed to evacuate the beach immediately. Tilly's father also noticed the signs and went to tell the hotel um, that was right on the beach, and tell the hotel staff so they could clear the entire beach. Tilly's mother was a little bit harder to convince, but finally, they cleared the entire beach. Not long after, the tsunami hit. Tilly was right. The signs that she had noticed were in fact a tsunami that had been triggered by an earthquake in 2004 off the coast of Thailand. Tilly's persistence had got her family to safety. And in fact, when it was reported of all the deaths that happened because of the tsunami, that beach was one of the only beaches that didn't have any casualties. Tilly's persistence and not giving up and telling people that a tsunami was coming saved countless lives that were there on the beach as well as those that were, on, that were in her family. A little girl who was paying attention, who wouldn't let anyone tell her differently. She knew that there was trouble coming. She was watching her surroundings and she was telling others the news. Today we're gonna be talking about four others who were also paying attention 
and who decided that by telling the news, they could end up saving many lives. Go ahead and turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 6. We're going to go back a little bit. So I know we said we're going to be in chapter 7 today. But before we get there, in order to understand the context, we're actually going to go to chapter 6. So 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 through 13. And it says this. It says, Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp at such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place because the Aramians are going to be down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and time again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded them, tell me, which one of us is on the side of the king of Israel? Which one of us? None of us, my lord the king, said one of his officers, but Elisha the prophet, prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Go and find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. And the report came back. He is in Dothan. The king of Aram is mad. Every moment, every move, every time he tries to get a leg up on Israel, he's thwarted. Somehow they know. They know where he's going to be. They know what's going to happen. And finally he's like, all right, who is it? Who's the one telling the king of Israel what's going on? And as I can imagine, they're like, "Mm -mm, not me, nope. It's not me, but it's Elisha. It's the prophet. And the king of Aram is so mad, he says, find him. Tell me where he's at. Let's capture him and let's eliminate this threat. Find the city in which he's in. In verses 24 and 5, it says, Sometime later, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mobilized his entire army and marched up and laid siege to Samaria. There was a great famine in the city, and the siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver and a quarter of a cab of seed, of, of seed pobs for five shekels. Now, to give you some context on what's going on here, uh, first off, Elisha is in Samaria at this point in time. And because they had laid siege, they had cut off all the resources going to the city, which means that the people had no food. There was a famine that has started. And the famine is so bad that people were starting to eat their livestock. It's not just the fact that they're eating their livestock, but it's the Israelites who know the Levitical law are eating an unclean meat, a donkey. And to even take it further, they're eating the head of it. Not just, you know, the thigh or 
you know, the leg or whatever it may be, the head of the donkey. This tells you a little bit about how bad this famine was because of the siege that was laid to the city. And they said that it cost about 80 shekels of silver. Two shekels of silver around that time, from what we can figure out, because shekels changed currency depending on the time it was in, is about $600. Two shekels. $600. Multiply that out till you get about 800. That's a lot of money. I'm not sure I would pay $600 for the donkey's head, let alone how much it was costing them in order just to feed their family. But it gets worse. Verse 28. The king is talking to a woman and he said, then he asked her, what's the matter? And she answered, this woman said to me, give up your son so we may eat him today and tomorrow we'll eat my son. So we cooked my son and ate him. And the next day I said to her, give up your son so we may eat him. But she had hidden him. Mothers are eating children. The famine is so bad that children are dying and being eaten because of it. And I know I can see some siblings out there and be like, mm, Mom would eat you first. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine not being hungry enough just to eat livestock and unclean meat, which you know is against the health principles but being so desperate that you're willing to eat your children. Things are bleak. Things do not look good for Samaria. And if we could point it down to one person, to one man, we could say it's all Elisha's fault. Had he not predicted that, they wouldn't have laid siege to Samaria. But I think it goes deeper than that. King of Aram didn't like being thwarted by Elijah. He did not like the God was telling the Israelites what was happening next. So let's zoom in a little bit. So we have Samaria, and things are really bad inside the city. But there's something going on in chapter 7 outside of the city. And there's four men that are living on the outside. Now, I'm sure there was more than four men at this time, but there's four men specifically that we're going to zoom in on. 2 Kings 7, verses 3 and 4 says, Now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. Now, I'm going to stop here for a second. Go ahead and leave that up. Um, because these men had leprosy, there's a lot of things that they could and could not do in the society. Because of their diseases, they weren't allowed into the city. And so they decided to be as close to the walls of Samaria as possible for protection. There's a siege going on, which means the enemy is at every possible exit. So starving, dying from disease, and outcasts from society, it says, they said to each other, why stay here until we die? If we say we'll go into the city, the famine is there, and we'll die. 
If we stay here, we will die. So let's go over to the camp of the Armenians and surrender. If they spare us, we'll live. If they kill us, we're going to die anyway. So at dusk, they got up and went to the camp of the Armenians. No matter which way they went, no matter which way they looked, these four men with leprosy, all they saw was death. If we go into the city, which we're not allowed, they're either going to kill us or there's the famine. If we stay here and do nothing, we're going to die of starvation. And if we go to the enemy camp, we might die there too, but you never know. We could take a chance. Have you ever felt so desperate, so desperate that you were willing to risk it all to take a chance? That you'd do anything it took to live? In 2005, Steve Jobs gave a commencement address to some university students. Um, he, he was talking to them, and as you know, a commencement address is usually uh, given to students is traditionally wisdom from some person who has got it together that is giving this to these students to help them through their next phase in life. And Steve Jobs at that commencement ceremony talked about three things. And one of them was death. Steve Jobs talked about how in the year prior, in 2004, he had gone to a doctor's appointment. And he had found out at his doctor's appointment that he had pancreatic cancer. The doctor told him that he had three to six months to live. Three to six. That's really short. Three to six months to live. And it was devastating news. They decided to run more tests, and after more tests were ran, they found out that the specific kind of pancreatic cancer that he had could actually be treated with surgery. So they decided to go through with the surgery, and the cancer was removed. Steve Jobs lived another seven years. And in this address, in this commencement address, he says this. He says, remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Because almost everything all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. Remembering that you are going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. You're already naked. There's no reason not to follow your heart. Remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool. So these four men with leprosy realized that they're on the brink of death. And they're like, we're dying. We've got nothing left to lose at this point in time. Why don't we take a chance? Let's live like there's no tomorrow. Because there may not be. And so they go together. They say, let's go together. And one thing I love about this is 
we have these four men that are dying, and instead of pushing each other away, instead of becoming increasingly selfish, as we saw with the two mothers and their children, instead of being every man for himself, they become community. They band together and say, not just you, but let's go together. Let's do this together. When hard times come, they come together and they say, hey, we're in this together. We'll do this together because are we are community. We're family. Let's go. Verse 5 through 7 says, At dusk they got up and went to the camp of the Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, no one was there. For the Lord had caused them to hear the sound of the chariots and horses and a great army. So they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and the Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and their donkeys. They left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. They booked it like there was no tomorrow for them. They forgot their horses, they fled by foot, and they were so scared that they forgot everything. In my family, scaring is kind of like a hobby, scaring people. So much so that growing up, it was quite normal to be picked up by my parents, and they would try to see how many times they could scare us from the school to the house that was only like two miles away. I tended to be more jumpier than my sister, and I remember at least several times jumping a good five or six times in the two miles it took to get home. Five minutes, to be exact with you. But to be so scared that you forget everything in your tent, your horses, anything else, to be so afraid that you just go? I don't know if I've ever been that scared before. But here was the enemy camp. So scared they forgot everything. And these four men come and they find an abandoned camp. No one is there. No enemy and no one to take their lives. Verse 8 says, the men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp, entered one of the tents, and ate and drank. These guys were starving. They're hungry. And they're like, first thing I want to do, food and water. Let's go. So they took silver, gold, and clothes and went off and hid them. They returned and entered another tent and took some things from it and hid it also. They're like, we hit the jackpot on decisions that were to be made. We made the best one. We're starving, and now we have food in our stomachs. We have such good fortune. We have things to drink. We have things to eat. You know, we're going to take some spoils to make sure we can eat in the future. We're going to hide some of that silver, some of that gold, some of the clothes. Make sure that we can have Things to make sure that we still can eat. But after a while, their conscience strikes them. And what I would consider to be the pinnacle of this story, to be the high point, the moment 
that if there was ever like the highlight of a story, this is it. It's the moment they remember that there are others back in the city, those that had outcasted them, those that had treated them badly, those that they didn't agree with. And they remembered them, and verse 9 says, and they said to each other, what we're doing is not right. Today is a day of good news, and we're keeping it all to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. So let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. It's an interesting point, because like I said before, people who had leprosy were not allowed into normal society. They were considered to be contagious. They were outcasted from their family and friends. They were not allowed to be inside of the city. And they had people who treated them poorly. No physical touch whatsoever. No coming even in the distance or downwind from them. If you had leprosy, you might as well have been dead anyway. That's what it felt like. And these people who treated them so poorly were the exact people that they wanted to help save. What we are doing is not right. This is a day of good news, and we're keeping it to ourselves. The men with leprosy realized that this good news that the enemy camp is gone is something that deserved to be shared with everyone. And as much as they wanted to keep it to themselves, they knew that that would be wrong. And they knew that it was good news for everyone, not just the people that treated them well, not just the people that liked them, but it was news that belonged to everyone. I think this is why the, re the reason why uh, Jesus says to go tell the world. Tell the world of the good news because good news belongs to everyone. And the good news is that Jesus loves you, am I right? Not only did he die, which we talk about a lot, but he rose again. That's the more important thing. So that you and I could live. And they look at each other and they say, what we're doing is not right. We need to go tell others because it needs to be shared. Sometimes bad news needs to be shared. Remember Tilly and the tsunami? Tsunamis are not good news, but if Tilly had not shared that news, it could have been a lot worse. And so, in verse 10 and 11, it says, They went and they called out to the city gatekeepers and told them, We went into the Armenian camp and no one was there. No one. Not a sound of anyone. Only the tethered horses and donkeys. And the tents were left just as they were. And the gatekeeper shouted the news and it was reported within the palace. They go and they tell the person on the watch that the siege is lifted. It's done. It's over. We're saved. Interestingly enough, the Bible defines a watchman as someone who is responsible for protecting towns and military installations from surprise enemy attacks or other potential dangers. In fact, you only had a watchman in a city, and a city was only a city if it had a wall. 
So the cities with walls had watchmen on the top who would look out and see if there was any enemies coming. And ancient Israelite cities often stationed these watchmen in high walls or even in watchtowers. Their job was to keep watch and warn the townspeople of impeding threats. When you look at the Hebrew word and translate it, it means one who looks out, one who spies, or one who watches. Watchmen make sense. And sometimes watchmen were scouts who looked out approaching enemies as well as approaching friends. And when these four men with leprosy had an opportunity to keep it to themselves, they couldn't do it. Even though they weren't the guards of the city, even though they weren't the watchmen, the ones that were stationed to be on the lookout, they knew that Samaria had been saved. They felt responsible for their people. And even though their intentions were selfish at first, well, maybe they'll give us a break and feed us if we, if we go to them. They knew that the good news had to be shared. Because who else is going to do it? If not us, then who? Who is going to do it? I have a serious question for you, church. Are we looking out? As you look in the room right here and look around, do we have people missing from our pews that are not here this week? Do we know where they are? Or are we too busy being selfish looking out for ourselves? Are we watching out for those in our churches, in our community, those we work with, those we do school with? Life has been hard. I'm taking my toys and I'm going home and I don't care about anyone else. We could have that mentality. But is it worth it? Is it worth that mentality? Do we care about those that are in the city, that are in Samaria, that have the famine going on, that are dying? Do we care about our community and people that are dying emotionally? Physically, mentally, socially, spiritually? Do we care and remember them? So church, will you be a watchman? Will you promise to care about those around us? The amazing part is that we are a community simply because we're in the same area, but we also believe something. We believe in someone. And even though I may not agree with you, even though we may have differences, and I don't like your personality, you're still in my community. And I still care whether or not you live. I'll never forget the day that my church family adopted Gloria. Gloria was two at the time. And I remember that there was a couple in our church who had decided to adopt. Um, they were my, not only my parents' friends, but they were really known because they helped out in the children's divisions, even though they had no children of their own. And as we stood in the courthouse, which was packed 
with all of us that were so excited that Gloria was being adopted into this family, I remember standing there for this momentous occasion as we pledged to as we pledged and promised to take care of her, to watch out for her, and to be there for Gloria. She didn't know it, but she had a church family already. Because we loved her parents, we loved her automatically. She was gonna be one of us. And for no other reason than that alone, we loved her. I didn't know it then, but we had promised to be a watchman of Gloria. Not only of Gloria, but of each other. We promised that we were going to stand by her and support her, to tell her when maybe she wasn't doing the right thing, that we were going to be there for her. Gloria is now much older than two, (laughs) but I still remember that day as if it was yesterday. We promised that we would do life together, that we would make every second count as a church family. And I wanna encourage you guys to do the same. Let's make every second count. Let's live for today, because we don't know if tomorrow is promised. This world is dying, mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally. And as a community, we have the chance to come together and to support one another. To say, I remember you, I know you, I love you, and I'm here for you. So I'll ask you again, church, do you promise to care about those around you? Do you? I hope you do. Will you be a watchman in our community? Yes? I love this line, what we're doing is not right because the day is of good news and we're keeping it to ourselves. We have the chance to share good news. We have good news, we do. It's right in the Bible and it tells us so many beautiful things. We have the chance to share it with the world. And I don't mean the kind of sharing that happens picketing when you're on the side of the streets. I'm not talking about sharing that kind of news. I'm sharing about sharing good news, about having relationships with people, to being able to look at someone and say, like, I love you so much, I have to tell you about this because I want to see you survive and thrive because I love you. Today is a day of good news and we should not keep it to ourselves.
May God bless you today as you go out on this Sabbath day. May he guide you. May you watch over those around us in our community. Go in peace.